I didn't ask him to do the mix zone. He came up to me and asked me if we were ready. Michael, who's been in the room for an hour and a half waiting, you know, comes out and says, all right, let's do it. So I had a tremendous amount of respect for those guys facing the music. And, you know, it's music that none of us have ever heard before. Welcome to the Sports Gazette Podcast. I'm Mitchell Marshall, along with Colin Benjamin. We spoke to Michael Kammerman, who is the United States Men's National Soccer Team Head Press Officer. He gave insight into the changes for national teams during this COVID-congested year. He talked about World Cup 2026 and so much more. We're going to jump right in. Have you ever had a year where you think there have been this many matches with senior players slash most of the players that are competitive right now for the States are are U23, so that applies to all your tournaments. How do you foresee this year going? It's a good point, Mitchell. I think in in the 20 years that I've been here, I don't think that we've had as congested a fixture schedule, which included both senior team and U23 competitions on the men's side. Between the Nations League, the Gold Cup, potentially the Olympics, and then eight World Cup qualifiers. Pound for pound, it might be the most significant year of competition that we've ever had. And so that's a, that's a difficult thing to, to prepare for in normal circumstances, but the circumstance which caused it in the first place being the global pandemic has really made that a, you know, it's, it's made it a challenge for everyone. And we're not the only ones in this boat, obviously. So you ask the question, how do you, how do you deal with it? The start really is, is preparation. Preparation for the things that you can, you can anticipate, but also you have to be prepared for the unexpected. Everything that we now have on the schedule is what is currently on the schedule. But as we know, the circumstances could change. So it's something that we really look forward to as an organization. From the senior national team perspective, obviously we're anxious to get started with qualifying, to put the 2018 cycle behind us and really focused on, on trying to, to advance to Qatar in 2022. And that's really what the priority is for this year. What kind of challenges or what kind of things might make your life easier going forward that you've learned from this COVID year? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's, it's frustrating, Mitchell. I think that just, it's just the circumstances that we're all dealing with. We're, we're fortunate that we are able to, that we've been able to play matches in the first place. Um, and that's in large part due to the work uh, led by our chief medical officer, George Champis, and everyone working on the medical side to develop the protocols that allow us to play and to, to play matches and have training camps in the first place. Uh, so I think we're, we're fortunate in that respect, you know, just from a, a planning perspective, what we're excited about is that we get a chance to, to rewrite the history to some degree, but also just to look forward to the group that we have here. I think from a player pool perspective, it's probably as an exciting time as, it, as, as it's ever been to, for the national team. And in part because the players are so young, we can see what the future looks like. Obviously, the most important thing is qualifying for 2022 and what we can do in Qatar. But certainly on the horizon is the 2026 FIFA World Cup that will be hosted in North America. Uh, so for, I think the, the way that we look at it is how do we how do we take the opportunity to tell the story of this journey. For you as just someone who loves football or soccer and is seeing these guys get to new levels at these clubs, I'm wondering how much 
how many matches do you watch in a week and how excited do you get kind of more as a fan of some of these guys when they're obviously playing for another organization, but you know, it, it has to do a lot with your full-time job. Well, first of all, Mitchell, I see you caught yourself there between saying football and soccer. And what I'd like to remind people when, uh, when they make fun of us on this side of the pond is where the word soccer comes from. Uh, it what doesn't originate from the United States. It originates from England. Oh yes. And so when uh, all the time, uh, uh, Colin has his Sky Sports on, over his shoulder. There, they uh, I'm pretty sure they've got a soccer Saturday show. Yes, they do. Soccer AM. Uh, oh, so yeah. <laughs> basically, have I have no time for people making fun of us for soccer. Happy to talk about it uh, as football. Yeah, look for me. I I'm born and raised a soccer guy. I have an identical twin brother who's also works in soccer, and we started playing when we were six. I think my mom thought it was going to be safer than than uh, American football, uh, but we're but, you know we played our we played our whole lives. We played through university. My brother was actually semi professional at at one point. Um, so I'm a soccer fan first. That's how I got into this. I was just fortunate that I wanted to be a part of a team, and this was the contribution that I could make. Unfortunately, it wasn't on the field, much as I would have loved. So huge soccer fan, and I think one of the things that where we're also very fortunate in the United States and probably people around the world uh, would be envious of is that we can watch more games on the weekend here than probably anywhere in the world. Yeah, I look at the TV schedule on the weekend and there's probably 70 matches we can watch. It, and it's from England, Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, Italy, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, like <laughs> we are, we have an embarrassment of riches and it only keeps growing. So I would say I watch a lot of soccer. The missus is more of a soccer fan than she certainly used to be because she's every, every Saturday and Sunday, she's wondering what game's going to be on the, on the TV and certainly like to, to try to watch the U.S. players as much as possible. You know, it, it's, it's hard for me to pick teams and say which teams I, that, that, that I support as a fan. Uh, because we have we have so many Americans both here and and playing abroad, um, but it, it's really it's it's fantastic and exciting to see not just the number of American players that are playing overseas, but the clubs that they're playing at and the contributions that they make. Yeah, I tell people I through a separate set of circumstances. I grew up in this the soccer mom generation, as it were, and played, and eventually became a Bournemouth fan. But the last couple of years, I've been watching you know as much Dortmund and and Chelsea as much as anything. So I, I enjoy that you guys, as well as a couple of podcasts and Grant Wall, you all publish watch schedules for these American players, which has been really handy, but it is, the volume is raising. It comes to the point where maybe two years ago, there was a, cause this is a story I'm, I'm looking to tell is just, there was a way to track this, especially with Christian. And now it's, it's snowballing, especially this, the last couple windows here. You kind of have to have a lot of screens if you want to watch all the Americans play. Like you said, watching them here, having like Sky, BT, I mean, watching Italian and, and German and Spanish football is way easier in the United States to be specific. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, you know, my, the, the first game that I went to outside of the United States was when we, my brother and I were backpacking after school and we went to Dortmund. And I remember thinking, like, imagine that's the first game you go to outside the U.S. You're just like, oh, Wow. Well, my first game outside the U.S. was U.S.-Germany and Hisifi in 2014. So it was a World Cup atmosphere. It's a little different, obviously, because you kind of have a lot of Brazilians in there along with, with the fans. But so going to a World Cup for my first matches outside of the U.S. was, uh, I set a high bar there. Yeah, and you probably had to swim back and forth to the game. 
<laughs> yeah, we were on one of those lines in Rio that was, or not in Rio, obviously, but in, in Brazil, Hasifi, that wasn't quite done. And it was torrential and they wouldn't allow umbrellas in the stadium. So we wasted 15 hay eyes on umbrellas. It was, it was madness, but I, I really enjoyed being there. Obviously being in that country for a World Cup during a Brazil game. I remember their PKs with Mexico, a one of a kind experience. But I do want to ask you just my my last thing here, I think is about Belfast we have coming up. We know hopefully this European crop of players and everyone that's healthy is going to get back together again. So I want to know, what did you guys learn from the visit to uh, specifically, I guess, starting off in Wales back in November? It's exciting to get everyone back together again. You know, as a fan, we're hoping Christian is healthy this time and can participate in that as well. Just what have you guys learned from that and how are they approaching the safety protocols and just what are they looking to get out of this early camp before all those competitions really start kicking off? Yeah, well, it, when you talk about the Wales match, really the, the, the most important thing for us was, was being able to get the group back together, uh, which hadn't been done in almost a year uh, by the time that, that match kicked off. Um, we were, again, we talked about the protocols that we have here in the United States, and they also you know, have very stringent rules in Europe. Uh, depending on the country you go to, the rules vary a little bit. But uh, we were very, very fortunate with the working with the Football Association of Wales to be able to enter into their environment, their, their strictly controlled environment and all the protocols that they had in place. In fact, the, the protocols that we have are more stringent than most, but we were able to do that in Wales. And then obviously in Austria, when we played the second match against Panama, and we'll essentially be replicating the same thing this time around in terms especially in terms of the protocol so you know last month we were supposed to play against serbia and everything was done and dusted um, but because of the issues of of traveling serbia wasn't able to come and we had to scramble to get an opponent so we had never announced the, the serbia match in fact serbia had announced it but as you know we wound up playing trinidad like I said, I think that there's a lot of reasons, pr practical and otherwise, why we that we don't announce matches uh, until everything is, is is settled. And there's usually leaks or rumors. I mean, sometimes months at a time, sometimes weeks. Honestly, I've only heard one little rumor about this one, and I don't, I don't, I'm not on board with it. I haven't heard it from a good enough source yet. So I, it's kind of fun when you're scrolling right. Twitter or Instagram and that pops up, you know. Yeah, look, and it's it's fantastic that fans care so much yeah. that they're really invested in knowing. And, you know, we get on our at US Soccer comms Twitter account, we get questions all the time. When are you announcing who it's going to be? The speculation, all that stuff. And, you know, and the other thing I would say, you know, on this topic, Mitchell, is, you know, the landscape for organizing friendlies has gotten much harder. Um, and particularly as it relates to playing teams in UEFA. One, is that a Nations League? Is that the is that one of the main blockages? A, the, yeah, the Nations League was took another significant chunk of the schedule for UEFA teams, so that had a big impact. And the other thing is that UEFA encourages the teams that are involved in qualifying to actually play friendlies within UEFA. Mm. Um, so the the opportunities to, to schedule friendlies against any Euro teams, Europe, European teams, much less the big ones, has gotten a lot more challenging. So if you look at the last couple of years, we've played nine of the 10 teams in Commonwealth. Wow. And, you know, and that's not an accident. It's in part because those are the teams that are available to us. So when you look at the March window and everyone throws out names like, 
they, all the teams they'd love us to play against, we'd love to play against them too. But there's, there's a lot of factors going into whether or not games can get scheduled. Greg has looked for these opportunities as all of the coaches before him to play matches in Europe. Um, one, because it's, it, you can, you know, there's good competitions to be had, good challenges to be had. These are the kind of teams that ultimately you're going to have to play and beat in World Cups. Um, and also now with the, the increasing number of U.S. players in Europe, you know, it's also decidedly more convenient for them to play those matches. When we talk about that congested schedule, obviously you can't put all of that, that match time on someone's legs like Western or Christian who are playing in three competitions with their, with their clubs as well. As an organization, is U.S. soccer having to place more people permanently in Europe, whether it be in scouting or operations or even communications of sorts, purely to be able to cover and, and be present with and get content or whatever it be with these players? Yeah, that, that's actually a, it's a good question, Mitchell. And we, we, I think we're pretty well connected on the scouting side. The idea of having a European-based office, I think, is is a legitimate one and certainly on people's minds here. And, and it would also make a lot of sense. And you mentioned content clearly for us, um, there would be a, there's a tremendous amount of value of having access to our European based players. And it's, it's, you know, it's always been a challenge over the years that I've been here with our European European based players, only in the sense that it, it, it used to be a more, a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And the fact that there's so much, you can see the games now more that they're it's more accessible. I think they become at least more present in the conscience of, you know, of sports and soccer fans here, but overall as an, as a national team, right. For us, we always have to the challenge of how do we may remain relevant in the times in between our matches, right? It, because they can come, few they, they they can come far in between or they can come all in bunches but what do we how do we as an organization and as a team how do we try to keep that our group relevant in the times that we're not together and the fact that they're at bigger clubs now and there's more access like there's more visibility to them that can be a blessing and a curse because they're being asked to do a lot of those things in their clubs in their daily environments so it's not like they're always necessarily looking forward to the phone call from the United States about how they can do things with us when they're not with us. I think as a starting point, it depends on where you're, you know, where people are listening from. There is a, as you all know, it's a vastly different media environment in the UK and in Europe than it is here in the US. There is significantly more access to players and managers here in the United States than there is in England and Europe. Um, and so, it, and it's one of the things that we've always benefited from is that our players are accustomed to media being part of their professional responsibilities um, because there's, there's so much access and they see it on TV every day when they're growing up, they see journalists in locker rooms, right? That, that's unheard of in the UK, people being in the changing rooms. Like it just doesn't happen. And After the, working and, in the NBA and then coming out here during COVID, I'm not going to, we, we cover a championship club, Brentford, really closely. Like, I'm not going to get in, I'm not going to be in a mix nope. zone for, you know, <laughs> until late summer at the most. So, like, when you talk about Belfast, like, you guys are going to have all your media remote. There's going to be limited room in a space room. It's, yeah, it's frustrating for, for the younger people trying to create that content. 
Yeah. But so the, the irony is that it, it's from a practical perspective, it's a lot easier. So yeah. when one of the things that, you know, people, when you talk about a mix zone, right? Not everyone knows what we're talking about. Exactly. Essentially, it's the way that media access is done after matches between players and journalists. And, you know, a mix zone is really just players on one side of a fence, media on the other side, and it's catch as catch can, right? And that can be hectic. It can be, uh, it can be loud. It can be pushy. And, you know, so those, so those are some of the challenges. And then on, you know, in the age of video conference, like we're doing now is just a lot cleaner. Yeah. (laughs) The sound is easier. The light is better. The backdrops look good. It's easy for us to provide the, you know, the video and the audio afterwards to anyone who wants it. So there are positives. I still, and I'm sure people who are journalists are concerned that, you know, that will reduce access in the future because at the end of the day, we're the ones making the choices, right? We pick the players, we decide uh, how long it goes. And, you know, even to some degree who asked the questions, you know, I personally don't view it that way. We don't want to limit access. That's not how we view it. And it's, but I understand people's journalists concern that it will, it will restrict access as opposed to promote it. Um, But that is one of the takeaways that we've had is that, you know, we are able to provide more access to more people through opportunities like video calls. A lot of stuff that you said, Michael, I'm aware of, but it's just great hearing you guys go back and forth. I feel like I was, I was learning something there. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After you guys played the Wales game, you kind of skipped it over a little Trinidad 7-0 there. Nobody in American soccer remember that game. But let's just talk about like our passing CONCACAF obviously as I reminded you we ran into each other like at least four times once once in Trinidad and three times in the U.S. in Denver Colorado and Cleveland so I'm just looking back at let's start look back at the the last time we met in Cleveland in the Gold Cup obviously USA was in the final of that game I remember watching that game in, in Chicago of all the Gold Cup finals you've been involved in where do you rank that one even though America lost the game, I, I was like in regards to the intensity of the game compared to the past Gold Cup finals. Well, look, anytime you play the U.S. and Mexico play, there's going to be intensity. So I think the the Gold Cup finals themselves, as we look back and look, I've been here since 2001. <laughs> so <laughs> there's been a lot of Gold Cups and a lot of finals. Look, as a starting point, it's a final and you always want to win. For, for people watching who aren't a part of it, right? It, it's hard to explain how much it means to actually be able to lift a trophy at the end of something. Um, and everyone shares in it, right? Which is exciting, but for as a group, it's, it's a real accomplishment. So playing in, in finals, whenever it is, is something that, that means a lot. And then when we play Mexico, you know, no matter what it is, it's always gonna be a, a ratcheted up. And to play in a Gold Cup final is one of the biggest games that we play in against them. Um, you know, so yeah, I think they also sometimes wind up being in context of particularly with Gold Cups, depending on the year, you know, they can be impacted by what else is going on. So when I say that, I'll give you an example. In 2009, we were playing in that summer. We had three World Cup qualifiers in June. Then we went straight to the Confederations Cup. And then we had the Gold Cup all in succession. So 
you know, we don't wind up, you can't have players playing for two months straight for the national team, particularly the players who are in Europe because that's their summer vacation. So we wound up having two almost completely different teams play in, in the, you know, in the, the qualifiers and the Confederations Cup versus the Gold Cup. And we still wound up with the, the, in 2009 with the Gold Cup team making the final. And we ultimately wound up losing, I believe it was 5-1 to Mexico. It was like, I think it was, it was tied going into the 60th minute and then, then the rails came off. But the, so sometimes the, the Gold Cups have a little bit of context to them. This particular one was the first competition under Greg. So I think we were, we were as a group, we're still, it's a, it's a young group as we've already talked about. Uh, it's still a in a learning phase with Greg and, and the, the game model that he has. Um, but none of those things matter when you're, you're in a final. It's, you want to you get the result. And for me, I, I, as I recall it, it was a tale of two halves. I think we were good in the first half and we had some chances. I think Josie had a good chance. I think Christian had a good chance. And they were better in the second half and they took the chance that they had. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a learning experience, but it's certainly never a good feeling. Uh, there's, there's no, there's not a whole lot of joy in, in being handled the silver medal. One of the things I've always found interesting, as I said, I've come to the U.S. three times to watch Trinidad play or work at games. And I've watched with the U.S. soccer, they would schedule games around the United States for different teams. So, so for, in your experience, would you say like, okay, if you're playing a Trinidad or a Costa Rica or a Mexico or a little country like, let's say, Barbados, if, you're, if your U.S. is hosting those teams, is it like, okay, we, we have a big fan base in Cleveland, we're going to put this team here, or we're going to play Trinidad in Florida? How does that kind of work from your experience? Sure. So when, we're, when we talk about World Cup qualifiers, the, 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 the driving factor is what gives us the best competitive chance to win. That's different than the way we approach friendlies or any other competitions. When, we, when it comes to World Cup qualifiers, it's how do we give ourselves the best chance to win? And we may be the only country in the world where we have to consider venues where we will be the home team in our own country. <laughs> Right. So if we wanted to play Mexico in Los Angeles, we could have 95,000 people and make a few million dollars and we would be the visiting team and it wouldn't be close. Right? That's just where we are at this stage. So do we we absolutely consider those factors? And we, so we, you look at, you know, the starting point is who the opponent is um, and where where would places be where we feel like we can have a pro U.S. crowd. And then there's other factors like what's the weather going to be like? How, how will the travel be? Not just for our team, but the opposing team as well. So it can make, it can matter if it's, if the first game is home or the first game is away, you consider, okay, where do we have to go from here or to here? If that makes sense, right? So let's just say, you know, if, if we're playing, you know, we played Mexico and Costa Rica in a window. The first, the first decision with Mexico is where are we going to play where we feel like we can have a pro-U.S. crowd? And that's all that historically now has been Columbus, right, since 2001. Um, but then from there, you have to go to San Jose, Costa Rica. So now you have to think about where is it, where can we play that 
one will give us a competitive advantage two that's gonna, that will be easier from a travel perspective um and what is the travel like for the team that has to come play us yeah absolutely i i i still have that image in my my brain of when you guys played costa rica in the snow which venue was, was that colorado that famous game. i was in denver um yeah, that denver was 13 right <laughs> um well, let's just let's just let's talk about that. <laughs> One, we can't make it snow. Uh, two, yeah. The previous sixteen years, on that the exact date in Denver, there had been zero snow. So while it might be advantageous for us to have played the games in the cold weather, especially from teams that come from warm weather environments, it doesn't benefit us to have six inches of snow on the ground. And so it was the most bizarre game that I've been a part of for that reason. It was just, I mean, it just started snowing and it just didn't stop. So, uh, but did we pick theirs because we thought it was going to snow that day and it would be, no, we did not. Because it doesn't, it doesn't help us either. But yeah, they were certainly not happy about that. Yeah, that, that, that one has always made me laugh looking back at it. And I kind of started talking about it come September, World Cup qualifying again. You got to go around the region, Central America, the Caribbean. Um, all these years as well, kind of similar question. Any particular Central American or Caribbean country you you particularly like going back to? Um, well, I, look, we get often asked, like, what's the hardest place to play in CONCACAF? And I think the assumption from everyone is that it's Mexico City. Um, and for obvious reasons, the fact that there's, that it's at altitude, it's almost 7,200 feet. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that there's now 87,000, I think it used to be more than 100,000, but I think with the renovations, there's 87,000 fans there. And Azteca is just iconic. Mexico very rarely has lost matches at home. Uh, in World Cup qualifying, we'd have to look to see how many they've lost in the last 50 years. For sure, it's on one hand. Um, but for me, the, the hardest place to play from an experience perspective used to be Estadio Saprisa in Costa Rica for a number of reasons. Like the, it was artificial turf and it wasn't very good. The, the fans are right on top of the field. The locker room is actually underneath of their ultras section, right? Their, or their hardcore supporters section. So much so that not only can you not hear the guy next to you, but the ceiling is literally bouncing from the people above you. So it, wow. it was probably like, in my experience, the most intimidating place to play. I mean, I never had to be on the field, obviously, but at, when, when you say all of those things at the end still, for me, I just love that stuff. I mean, just, it's, so, it's so much fun and it's so exciting to be a part of. But it, it, it re they really can be challenging places to play. And I think, you know, for people in the U.S., if they haven't been there to see it and experience it, it's one of those things that's difficult to understand. Like, like where you guys are based in the U.K., they say, why is it so hard to win games in CONCACAF? And they say, all right, <laughs> come, come with us once and see what it's like and see what you think. Yeah. And I think you segued perfectly into my next question. Like I learned a lot from you over the years watching you operate in PR before I got into PR myself. So dealing with controversial moments, obviously the, the, probably the most recent famous one was the loss in Trinidad and Cuba. So I guess from an insider perspective, 
dealing with you knowing, okay, America not going to go to Russia 2018. You got to come home and face that. And I, I haven't been with the team so long. How did you deal with that both from internal comms and just as a fan? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think we have unique jobs when it comes to, you know, being the media officers for teams in that, you know, we have, uh, we have responsibilities and, and work that in a lot of ways begins when the game ends. And, and, and oftentimes it can be the toughest job. So, you know, when we lose the game and we're out of the World Cup, which is an absolute shock to probably everybody, right? There isn't anybody who thinks on that day that we're not going to the World Cup. Not even sure. So, you know, in that moment for me, I still have the job to do. You know, we have 30 reporters who have traveled to Trinidad. Um, and, you know, we have, we have an obligation to represent. Uh, and for me, those are the moments where, you know, where all the work that we've done as a group, uh, you know, whether it's players, coaches, staff, the, the, the strength that we have a group is to deal with the, the difficult moments. And that's what we're there for. I, I like to say that it's easy when it's easy. And you, you learn a lot when it's hard. So, you know, in that particular moment, having to go to players, to Omar Gonzalez, who was involved in the, you know, the own goal, you know, which is probably the worst moment for him personally in his career. And to have to talk to him about going to now talk to reporters about that or Tim Howard or Josie or Michael Bradley. So Michael Bradley, that game was randomly selected for doping control, which means that once the game is over, you have to go straight into a room and wait till you can complete the doping test. So you don't get to go to the locker room. You don't get to speak to your teammates. You go sit in a room and wait. And as you can imagine, having played a 90 minute game, that is not a, usually an easy process. For him, it was an hour and a half where he was by himself. And so one of my memories from that day and one of the things that I'm most proud of of the group is how they handled that situation. Omar Gonzalez in tears. I didn't ask him to go do the mix zone. He came up to me and asked me if we were ready. Tim Howard, Josie, all super emotional. Michael, who's been in the room for an hour and a half waiting, you know, comes out and says, all right, let's do it. So I had a tremendous amount of respect for those guys facing the music. And, you know, it's music that none of us had ever heard before. That's deep. Colin, I'm depressed from here. I, yeah, that, can't, that's deep. I can't believe you made me think of that. Oh, you made me really that through someone who was really there. That is, is, it was a painful day. So to have to write a recap, to have to talk to press, to have to, do social media, whatever it be like that is, yeah, you're right. You have a job to do. It's, it's crushing. Yeah. And look, it, you know, again, like it's for us as media officers, that's our job. And am I, you know, our job in the moment is we don't get to be emotional about it mm -hmm. because we, you know, it, we don't get to be emotional one because we have to be professional, but also because it's our job to be there for the players and coaches to help them through that. 
And Michael, we obviously know the feeling of detaching ourselves from sports a little bit as journalists or as PR guys, you know, um, those lines, you know, blurring and everything along. I'm curious because you know those people so well, you're passionate about the team. Do you allow yourself at some point later on to become emotional about that? Absolutely. And, but it takes longer to hit <laughs> because we also stay in work mode, you know, and whether it's good or bad, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when, when we beat Algeria in the world cup and we had that amazing moment, we still have the same work to do. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, of a blessing and a curse because it does ruin you as a fan a little bit becoming trained to be unemotional about things then you know sometimes that's a hard thing to turn off even when you're being a when you're being a fan I actually get like for me that was I felt that way for a long time and I'm also a you know I'm a fan of other sports and I'm a huge Washington Capitals fan so in 2018 when the, the Capitals went on the run where they ultimately won the Stanley Cup like that was my re-emergence as a fan like being along for that ride uh, and really being like just feeling it all the way through. Well, after that, I got to end positive. Well, a couple of years ago, as we all know, USA got the 2026 World Cup alongside of Canada and Mexico, of course. And for you, Michael, personally, if you are still pushing too hard, that would make quarter of a century on the job with U.S. soccer press officer. Yeah, yeah. I was checking like, wait, Michael did the job so long. I've been, I've been a journalist, PR, now I'm in England. I've, I've, Michael is still there. Yeah. So I guess from a career standpoint, where were you rank? Where would you rank being part of a home world cup? The, 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 the growth of soccer in the United States is a success story that I don't think anybody could have imagined or appreciated. Um, you know, and, and look, it's probably always the experience of the, you know, when it goes from gener gener generation to generation to say, ah, oh, you don't know what it was like back in the old days. Uh, and certainly people that are getting involved in the game in soccer now, like what they see in front of them and how far it's come in the, in the, the years that I've been a part of it. Like it's something that we can all be a proud of, proud of who have been, who have been there. Um, and then to see what it would be like in 2026, uh, you know, would certainly be uh, an amazing and humbling experience. Yeah, I guess I could just say on behalf of CONCACAF, I've grew up in Trinidad, lived in Canada. I think everybody's looking forward to that event because, and of course, we had extra places now. So, yeah, it just won't be USA, Mexico, Costa Rica alone. A few others have a chance now. You may not take it, but you have a chance. <laughs> Yeah, well, it'll be the first time there's a 48-team World Cup, right? So yeah. the expectation is, it's not agreed, I don't think, but the expectation is that there'll be six teams from CONCACAF. So yeah, it, it will certainly give more teams an opportunity. I think historically speaking, when you talk about the final round of qualifying, you know, it's only anywhere from eight to 10 teams that are historically, you know, that are usually a part of the six. Yeah. Uh, and so obviously that will all change. And the fact that the USA, Canada and Mexico w likely won't be in the qualifying process makes it even, even more open. Yeah, it's gonna be which is great for the region, I think. Yeah, it's going to be a rat race. Can't we? But Mike, as usual, known you for a long time. Thanks for this. 
I, I enjoyed this a ton. And obviously it's a huge year for you guys and uh, being based over here and being able to cover those players to some degree and hopefully to a further degree soon. This has given us a great insight on, on the perspective from the organization and, and interesting stories from you. And I think we should all be pretty excited about football and, and getting past COVID here in, in 2021. Come on, man. We'll keep Thanks. in touch, Michael. Thanks again. Yeah, you got it. Have a good weekend. Cheers. Yeah.